0: Well, it's great to be with you today and to get to speak today. This is week five of the series and um, I'm hoping that you have found or are finding this series both inspiring and helpful on one hand and at the same time challenging because if we're doing this series right together this should be challenging to all of us in different ways. This series I think is inspiring because what we're talking about here isn't just a nice idea, it's not something we've conjured that we all been good to do this in the church. This is what we believe from the New Testament is God's plan and design for his church, that God is after a church, which is a community where not only do you and I get to come back to God and be reconciled to him, we get to come home, but God is after a community made up of people from all different backgrounds, different cultures, different classes, different age and stage, and because of what he does at the cross, we get to come together And he is after forming such a radically different kind of community to what we see in the world that in Paul's letter to Ephesians chapter 2, he says, God is forming one new man, like a new race, a new type of community. And I think as I was preparing for this message today, I was thinking what a privilege to live where we live at a time like this in history, where we get to embody, we get the chance to do this together. I grew up in a town just outside London, which was pretty much monocultural, white, middle class, okay? Now, the Bible is true for that town, but in this place, okay, you don't often hear it said, what a privilege to grow up in Catford, but what a privilege to be in Catford, in southeast London, where we get to do church in such a way that we can say, we could embody this. We could grow to be like this. We can take people from all different backgrounds because everybody lives here. And we get to do what it says in Ephesians 2 and form a community together which embodies what God wants to do amongst people from all different backgrounds. We get to do it. Something of this vision should resonate deeply in your heart. Yes? There should be something. Because when we touch this, when we get it right and we don't always get it right and we're learning and that's what this series is all about. But when we start to do church in such a way that someone from this background and this background and this background starts to feel like this is home we start to realize what a church made up of people from all different backgrounds, how good that can be. So much better than being in a church just made up of people who just look like us. What a privilege to do this. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Claude. Some of you will know Claude. And Claude and I are very different. We, We don't look the same. We we, we come from different backgrounds, we grew up in different places, we sound different. And if you were to take me and Claude and put them in a, us in a room together with lots of other people, you probably wouldn't pick him and me out to be the most likely people in the room to connect. And yet we do really connect. We're, Claude and I are friends, good friends. And we have, for all our differences, a whole load of similarities. See, Claude and I both know what it is to have walked away from God And yet we get to come home. Claude and I both know what it is to have deserved judgment. We get mercy to have deserved unforgiveness, but we get forgiveness. We're both, if you like, sons. We both get to come home to God. We're we're, we're brothers. And Claude and I share a love of music. And one of the great joys and privileges, certainly for me, (laughs) I'm hoping it is for him, is sometimes we get to write music together. And when we do that, I bring what I've got, my background, my preferences, my gifts. He brings what he's got, his background, his preferences, his gifts. And we do something, we create something together that I don't think either of us would ever have created on our own. You know, I just like, I respect him. I respect his turn of phrase, his delivery of of, of words, his lyrical insight. Occasionally, I help him a little bit of his rapping and his spoken word because he needs a bit of work on that and I'm a bit taller than him, but he's so, so good. Like, we'll write a song, and I get him involved, and it's like, it's like how did you do that? And we come up with sometimes the product at the end is something that neither of us would have been able to do on our own, and it's so much, he makes what I do so much better, and that for me is a little picture of what a church made up of people from all different backgrounds can be like, when we get it right, we get to experience God, we get to do church, we get to understand the gospel so much better than we do when we we're apart. And the food is a lot better also. Now, so there should be something in us that goes, I want... That I do not want a church just made up of people in my age group who look just like me. I want a church made up of people from all different backgrounds. We should want it. It should inspire us and resonate deeply in us. But the truth is there is a problem as well, isn't there? Because although the vision resonates in us, we actually find it at times Challenging to live it out consistently. So we we're, we're happy to to sing together. We can be happy to pray together, serve together. That's all good. But we find it challenging sometimes to consistently come to the table together. What I mean by that is this picture of the table that we're using. In this series is symbolizes fellowship and connection and relationship beyond just association. In other, you know, it's like. You know, in in ancient times, in the the Middle East, in Jesus' time, the table was the picture of I welcome you, you welcome me, we connect. And we find it easy sometimes, don't we? Even if we catch the vision, to withdraw quickly back into our own circles of people who look like us and sound like us. We want it, but we find it hard. That's true, isn't it? This isn't a new dynamic. If you read in the Bible, you read Galatians 2, Paul recounts a story, an incident in Antioch where he has to confront Peter. Peter has been in Antioch, has been eating with the Gentiles at the table. So he's connected to them. And then Jews come along who are criticizing. His people come along and criticize him for associating with those people. And so because he's worried about them and fearful, and he's like all of us, he begins to withdraw and just eat with his people, the Jews. And Paul comes to Antioch and realizes what's going on, and he confronts Peter and says, what are you doing? Well, I think that story, if nothing else, illustrates to us that Peter is human and like us, and even though he's caught the vision that The gospel is for all people and God's after community, made up of all people who cross the divide, who come through differences and get to the table together, even though he's caught the vision. You see it in Acts 90, God gives him a remarkable vision. He even lives it out, goes to Cornelius' house in the next chapter. It carries on, and he's been eating with the Gentiles. He's even started to live it out. He quickly withdraws back to people who look like him, sound like him, and make him feel more comfortable. And that's the challenge. That's the problem. We want this. We find this vision. We should find this vision, something that in us that goes, yes, I want that. It resonates in us. And yet, we find it hard. It's difficult to keep crossing the divide. Now, there's lots of reasons for this, okay? Lots of reasons. It's a complex issue. But let me just talk about one issue which Joel Edwards touched on last week if you were here. And that is the trust question. Okay, in any relationship, it doesn't matter what, even people who look just like you, if you're going to get to know them, there's going to be the question at some point of trust. Can I trust you? So if Lennox and I, I know Lennox, but let's say I've never met Lennox, and we're going to become friends, okay? And we chat a bit, and to begin with, it's all very surface and all very nice, but sooner or later, for our relationship to go to any kind of depth, I have to tell him something about me which is more vulnerable and real, yeah? So I have to stop pretending, and I have to let the mask down, and I have to risk something with him that discloses something about who, I'm, who I really am, and I have to show some kind of vulnerability because you can only be loved to the extent you are known. You can only be loved to the extent you are known. In other words, for this relationship to go any deeper, I have to tell him something real about me. Now, that is a risk, and when I do that, there's a question. It is, can I trust him? Which is why I've never told Lennox anything. This a, no, no, that's not true, okay? But that's the question. We don't say it out loud. We're not saying, can I trust you? But that's playing because if I tell him who I really am, my fear is he won't like me anymore, and the whole thing will walk away. That's what happens in any kind of relationship. Now, that is compounded and amplified When it's across difference, it's the trust question. Now, when there is difference and there is a history, maybe things that have happened in my life that have hurt me or his life that's hurt him, or there is a history where there's anger and resentment about what maybe my people, I feel, have have suffered at the hands of his people or his people have suffered at the hands of my people, where there's that dynamic going on in a relationship, okay, It's not just a question anymore, can I trust you? Because my history is teaching you, I don't just have a question. I think I have the beginnings of an answer, which is this. I don't know if I can trust you. That is the real dynamic, folks, across difference in relationships. That is the elephant at the table. It's the thing we don't want to talk about, but it's the thing that we have to address in order to get past it so the table becomes somewhere we consistently connect And it goes beyond association to connection and friendship, which is God's heart for us. So we want this. We we think that the vision's right, amen. We think something resonates in us. We don't want to just be siloed into our own culture over here. We want this one new man thing. But the truth is we're caught. Because when there's a history of damage, when trust has been broken, when, when you've been hurt, either by an individual or by another people group, it is not enough for someone on a platform on a Sunday morning to go, wow, just get over it. Just, you know, ignore it and move on, everybody. Just ignore that thing. Let's move on and let's start again. It's a new day. It's not enough to say that because we're caught. Our history catches us and holds us. What do we need? We need something or someone to free us. We need something to heal us on the inside, that we can take steps across difference to other people. That's what we need. We need some kind of mechanism, if you like, by which God can deliver healing to us so that we can get free, so that we can live differently, more freely, relationally with people of difference from all different backgrounds. That is what we need. Hallelujah. Praise God. God gives that to us. And the, what it's called is, it's called Forgiveness. The answer to the trust problem in a relationship is forgiveness. John Ortberg wrote a book once called Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, which I think is true. And this is what he says about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a kind of spiritual surgery that can remove what is toxic to the heart and make dead relationships come alive again. If we are to live this out consistently, beyond association, but to the table together where we are in each other's homes and building relationships across all types of different then we need to learn how to forgive. It is, if you like, if you think of the picture of the table, it is the seasoning that you need in every kind of meal across difference. Forgiveness, we need a table laden with forgiveness and grace for one another. Because the relationships sometimes are complex with misunderstandings and brokenness and damage from our past and even our present. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, I think there's a lot of things we misunderstand about what forgiveness is or is not. So let me just tell you what I think forgiveness is not. First of all this, forgiveness, when you forgive someone or if you give a a people group, if you forgive them, you're not saying what has happened is okay. You're not condoning the action, in other words. We're not going to go, oh, it was okay. It's not okay. Forgiveness is not the same as condoning an action. If it was okay, we wouldn't have to forgive them. So it's not condoning. That's the first thing. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. In other words, it's not trying to stuff the memory somewhere down inside. We're not trying to suppress what has happened. Sometimes we've got to talk about what's happened. So it's not the same as... It's not denial, in other words, of what has happened. It's not forgetting. If we could forget it, again, we wouldn't have to deal with it and forgive them. Forgiveness is not... The same as waiting for someone to apologize to us. That's how we want it, by the way, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's how we want it. If Lennox has wronged me, which he hasn't, but let's say he did, okay? Let's say he said, I hate one of your songs, Phil. Let's say he's wronged me, okay? Okay? What I want him to do is I want him to come and squirm before me on the floor, begging for forgiveness, acknowledging that there was no shred of truth in anything he ever said. And by the way, I don't want to just hear him say, I want it in writing, preferably signed in his own blood in front of me, okay? And then maybe, maybe I will in a very lordly, kindly, superior kind of way, bequeath forgiveness to him, right? That's not forgiveness. That's like using forgiveness as a weapon. Yeah, we did that in my old church where I grew up. People would do that in a very weird way. Okay, they would come up and say, "I just want you to know I have forgiven you," and you wouldn't even know what the issue was. And they weren't forgiving you; they were just telling you, "I have a problem with you. I just want to know," but I'm going to dress it up as forgiveness. That's what they would do. Very odd. Okay, forgiveness is about us taking the initiative, and it's not all about feelings, by the way. It's about a choice. We take the initiative. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, "This is how you deal with a brother." Someone close to you who has wronged you, you go to them. You step towards them. We want them to come to us, but you step to them. It's not the same as waiting for them. Forgiveness is not even reconciliation. We want reconciliation, by the way, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but forgive, reconciliation needs both sides to acknowledge that there's wrong here and to process this the same way and come to you kind of, you know, some kind of Well, reconciliation together. Forgiveness is not that. Sometimes you've got to forgive someone who doesn't even acknowledge that they've done wrong. Sometimes you're forgiving someone who's not even alive anymore. So forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. You know, forgiveness is not the same as reuniting with an abusive husband. That's not the same thing. What is forgiveness then? Forgiveness is about giving up the right to hurt the other person back. It's giving up the right, if you like, to get even. You see, when someone wrongs you, they rob you of something. They take from you. They take joy. They take dignity. uh, They may take your reputation. They have robbed you. In other words, there is a debt. Now, you can do two things with a debt, okay? The first thing is this. You can take the debt, and you can inflict it back on them. That's what unforgiveness is. It's like saying, I'm going to make you pay for how you have wronged me or wronged my people, I'm holding it against you as a debt that you have to pay. Okay? That's the first thing you can do. The second thing you can do with a debt is you can absorb it. You absorb the debt rather than inflict it. And forgiveness is about absorbing the debt. In other words, when you forgive someone, there is a cost. It will cost you something. So we're not into denial, we're not into unreality, we're not going, oh, we'll just forget about it. No, 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 you have to absorb the debt when it comes to forgiveness. And forgiveness, ironically, <laughs> is about us getting free. You see, we hold people, don't we? we? We hold unforgiveness about people, sometimes very understandable reasons, by the way. This is not supposed to be glib, like it's easy, I'm not saying that. But we hold people unforgiven because we are hoping that that will in some way imprison them and make them pay for what they've done to us. We want to hold them captive in our minds because of the pain and the hurt they've caused us and the way, it's, the way they've treated us unfairly, aware or unaware, and that's why we did it. But what we find is, ironically, because we hold them unforgiven, the people held captive are us. We find that we can't move on, we find bitterness rooting in us, it shapes the way we respond to our next relationship and the next relationship, and we can't push back it, and we find we're the ones imprisoned. And forgiveness is God's gift to us to get free. It gets we get free. It's a way of releasing us. Now, as I'm speaking, I'm aware. Different ones of us in the room are thinking or really, immediately, you know, God is reminding you of a person or a situation or maybe even a people group that you know you, you resent or you feel hurt by and it affects you. You're not free of it. And if you're listening to it right and God's speaking to you, something within you thinks, I want to get free of this. Now, if you're there, I want to say a few things to you about how to take the steps of forgiveness. I want you to understand a few things. And fundamentally, this. Whilst forgiveness is something that we have to do, like I said, you have to take the step, you have to, you know, you have to be take the initiative, and there are steps of forgiveness. The ability to take the step is built on the platform of understanding and experiencing, tasting, if you like, what Jesus did for you on the cross. Our ability to forgive someone and take those steps is fundamentally rooted far more about what he has done on the cross than it is about what I'm about to do. Let me give you an illustration. So a couple of weeks ago, I met up with a friend of mine called John, and uh, we were talking about the fact that he's climbed a mountain in Africa called Mount Kilimanjaro. It's in Tanzania, and he's done it three times now. Kilimanjaro is just under 20,000 feet, so it's a big mountain. Okay? And I was going, well, just tell me about you know, how you did that, and what that was like, And he was saying, well, there's a few things you need to climb Kilimanjaro. First of all, obviously, you've got to be fit enough. You've got to have the right gear. You've got to have a guide. But he said, the real thing you've got to have, or at least you've got to allow time for is your body has to acclimatize to the altitude and the lack of oxygen at different altitudes as you go up. You know, the thing that gets people often it means they don't make it to the top and otherwise, and they don't take the steps, is they simply have not allowed their body enough time to acclimatize. So if I said to you, like, who wants to go and climb Kilimanjaro? Let's go. And somebody said, Yeah, we'll go, you know, say Lennox, after we've repaired our relationship, we decide to go. I said, we're gonna go tonight, we're gonna land tomorrow, we're gonna climb on Tuesday and be home for dinner Tuesday night. That's what we're gonna we're gonna take the shortest route, we get the guide straight up as fast as we can. The truth is we're not gonna make it. We will not go where we're trying to get to, because our body will not have enough time to acclimatize our body we're just not prepared to do this. We're going to be sick. It's going to get altitude sickness. We're going to have to come down. We will not get where we want to go. Well, that is the same thing for forgiveness. In order for us to take the steps, there is something that has to happen inside of us in order for us to be able to take the steps to get where God wants us to get to. For the climber to make it, something has to adjust, adjust inside of them In order for them to make it all the way, to take the step. For the victim to forgive, God needs to do a work inside of us that enables us to make the steps. Our our ability to do it, to take the step, in other words, to forgive, is born out of fundamentally changes that happen in our hearts first because of the cross, and then we can take the steps. I'm going to read to you a passage that Andrew spoke about earlier in the, in the series. This is a passage which is all about the cross and what the cross has done in us and for us and what he wants to do through us, if you like. It is, it's, a, it's a brilliant passage of acclimatization to use that picture. Okay, I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 2. It's going to come up on the screen from verse 11, and it says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision... Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, in other words, because of the cross, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came, preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you are near, For through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Three things I want you to see about the cross which makes it possible for us to take steps of forgiveness. Here's the first one. At the cross... Jesus radically changes who we are. In other words, he changes our identity at the cross. You see, the cross is not just about me coming to him and getting forgiveness, as amazing as that is. At the cross, he changes fundamentally who I am now. Verse 14, it says this. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His Purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. What does that mean? It means this when I become a Christian, right, I'm still white and British, as you can probably tell. But fundamentally, that is no longer the thing that defines who I am. I'm a believer first, I'm a follower first, and those things are completely secondary. If you're Nigerian or Jamaican or Polish, or Australian, whatever you are, when you come to him, you are now first a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus, and second, you are a Jamaican, Nigerian, Polish person, Australian, or British person, whoever you are. In other words, at the cross, fundamentally, he has redefined who I am and who you are. That's what's happened at the cross. My identity has changed. We are, if you like, in Ephesians 2, it says, we are now one new race, one new man, one new kind of community. So in the words of the well-known theologian, Sister, theologian, sister Sledge, we are now family, okay? <laughs> and we're going to use that song at the end as a response song, okay? <laughs> now, here's the critical thing, right? You, if you begin to understand that, that he has changed your identity, so you're Your race, your natural race or culture or nationality or class is secondary now. When you understand that, Jesus is radically redefining who you consider us and them. Who do you consider us and who do you consider them? Those people. You see, we're brilliant at dividing people into us and them, aren't we? We're just like genius at this. So we went away as a staff recently with like our other halves And we did this thing, personality tests, Myers-Briggs and that kind of stuff. And as part of that test, the guy in charge divided the room up into introverts and extroverts and thinkers and feelers. And if you've ever done that, they divide you up into all sorts. And it was amazing how fast people start kind of like slanging off the other ones. You know, the extroverts are telling the introverts they're really boring. The introverts are telling the extroverts they're just shallow. You know, this is all happening. Because we're brilliant at dividing people into us and them. It It comes naturally to us. It's not new either, by the way. This is exactly what happens in Jesus' time. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law were fantastic. at they would, they would make it a virtue. This is us, and those people, they're not included. They're out there. And it was like a virtue. It was like a good thing to do in their circles. Jesus comes along and calls it a sin. That's what he does. And so he starts to tell stories and, and embody this in certain ways. So in his stories, he tells. If you, if you look at Jesus' stories, or if you look at the people he talks to, he speaks to a woman A Samaritan woman who has been married five times, and Jesus is kind to her and she becomes an evangelist. He heals ten lepers. Only the Samaritan one returns to thank him. In a story where a man is beaten on the ground and left to die... The hero is the Samaritan and not the Jew. In other words, Jesus is radically redefining who we consider us and who we consider them. Again and again, he's saying we're going to deal with the us and them issue that you carry with you all the time. I'm going to recreate you. I'm going to redefine you. No more us and them. He is saying in my kingdom, not only is us and them wrong, but it doesn't exist anymore. In the kingdom, it's just us and him. Now, this is absolutely fundamental stuff, everybody. If you consider yourself first, I'm first British and I'm second a Christian. You have misunderstood what the cross has done. If you consider yourself, I'm first Jamaican, second Christian. You have misunderstood because the cross goes no, 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 no. One new race. One new race. Okay. That doesn't mean there isn't difference. That doesn't mean we don't it's not a denial. But fundamentally, who am I now? One new man. It's us and it's him. And this is so key because sometimes in our backgrounds, when we have been hurt, maybe we've been oppressed by another culture, that resentment has so taken root in us that we consider it simply now part of our identity. Well, our people just don't like those people. And Jesus says, at the cross, I am recreating you, redefining you, I'm rewriting your story so that your past does not now define your future. This is what happens at the cross. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. At the cross, we realize where I was. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. In other words, at the cross, I realized how far away I was from him, how far short I fall of him. And that is true of every person, every culture, every background, every race. All of us fall short of him at the cross. We realize in other words, the, cr- the cross exposes, if you like, ruthlessly the truth about who we really are. You see, in John 8, there's a story of a woman who's caught in adultery. The teachers of the law bring her to Jesus. And they go, you know, in the law Jesus, it says that we should stone her. She be, should be put to death. So can, can, does she deserve judgment? So Jesus kneels down, writes in the sand. And he gets up and he goes, yeah, she does deserve to die. You're right. She deserves judgment. And whichever one of you is first who's no sin, you can throw the first stone. And if you know the story, no one throws a stone. What is he saying? He's saying they do deserve judgment. He deserves judgment. She deserves judgment. But it's just not your judgment. It's not your judgment to bring anymore. It's not your condemnation to bring anymore because everyone falls short every cultural grouping falls short every history nationality falls short of him and when you forgive someone what you're saying to him you're not saying i don't want justice what you're saying jesus i trust you that you are the judge and you will bring justice where there has been injustice but i'm putting the responsibility for the justice bringer into your hands and i'm relinquishing it out of mine because when we hold people accountable for things that have been done to us, we're saying, "I'm going to hold them unforgiven." and it's a way of trying to bring justice to them, because they deserve justice. Well, you're right, they probably do. But he's the justice bringer. And forgiveness goes, "I'm putting it into your hands because I'm guilty as well." That's what happens at the cross. We're all guilty. We all fall short. We all need mercy. And the the cross brings humility. Often, unforgiveness is twinned with a sense of superiority. We think ourselves better than them because of what they've done. At the cross, we suddenly realize we are all fallen short. And when you get that, what it means is you can start to see beyond the problem that they are to the person behind them because they're just like you. Here's the last thing as we close. At the cross... I understand where I stand now. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners, strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. At the cross, I get to come home. You get to come home. At the cross, do you know what? I realize again, I'm loved. I'm accepted. God is fond of me. He loves you. He's fond of you. He loves how he's made you. At the cross, you realize again how much he is fond of you. Now, when you realize that, when that sinks into your heart, when that shapes who you really are, the possibility of being able to forgive someone who's wronged you becomes a real possibility rather than a religious facade, because I realize how much in credit I am now at the cross. Let's use a picture. If you you have a million pounds in the bank, not only do we all want to meet you and go out for lunch with you this afternoon... But if you have a million pounds in the bank, if you're in credit by a million pounds, if someone owes you a hundred pounds or even a thousand pounds, maybe even 10,000 pounds, in other words, they are seriously in debt to you. They rob from you. The truth is you can probably absorb that debt, can't you? Because you've got a million pounds in the bank. But when you have nothing in the bank, like you're bankrupt already, you're empty when it comes to this. When someone owes you or wrongs you, you're going to find it very difficult to absorb the debt of forgiveness. At the cross, if you have understood the cross right, you realize how much in credit you are. How much you deserve judgment, but you get mercy. How much you deserve to be excluded, but you get to come home. You're in credit. And at the cross, the possibility becomes real to take steps of forgiving people it's just like it's just amazing grace, everybody you know we shouldn't be able to do church together, but because of grace, we can start to do this we can start to work it out. You see, I believe God wants us to push beyond association into connection and friendship at the table consistently, not just for a series. Because we realize this is who we are now. You see, at the cross, where we've been defined by anger and resentment of things that have done to us, and they may be very real offense, by the way, and I'm not in any way ignoring that that is real, but because of that, at the cross, God can get us free from that past. Because of what the cross has done because when we come to him at the cross we realize just how amazing grace is and we understand that this grace is now available for us to dispense forgiveness to people who by rights shouldn't get it but because of what he has done in your heart now you can absorb the debt and you can take the steps let's stand we're going to pray and the band are going to come and we're going to sing but let's just pray together Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the king of everything, and you understand history and what has happened to us. You know us by name. You know our stories. You know the challenges in our own hearts. You know the people that visually we're thinking of right now who have wronged us, and we want to ask for the reality of the cross to break into us so that we get to walk free, and we get to live in the ways that you're calling us to live we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And I want to pray that by your spirit now, you'd give us the courage to take the steps you want us to take. Amen.